0: On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Scott today, we are talking about freedom of expression. There is a new poll that's been done across this country, and it suggests there's a lot of people concerned that it's not as easy to speak freely these days as it once was. We're going to be talking about the Olympics. Great results for Canada, but the TV numbers not reflecting that. Why is TV struggling with the Tokyo Games? Another survey, not a survey, a study that's been done of healthcare systems from developed countries, from the richest countries in the world. Where do you think Canada falls in that? We're going to talk about it. You might be a little bit surprised. And it is International Beer Day. Why is craft beer especially, but beer in general, having a moment? We'll talk about it. Stay with us.
1: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
0: Really interesting survey that has been done in this country finds that free speech, um, th- there there are different opinions on free speech and a lot of it is generational, but the results sound to me rather sobering. Nearly half of people in this country in this poll done by Post Media and Leger say speech is more restricted today and 40% say it will be even harder to speak freely about controversial issues in five or 10 years, that the way things are going, that we're, you know, we like to say we have free speech. A lot of people saying, yeah, not really free speech, free-ish speech, free speech, as long as you speak freely about the things that are acceptable to speak about, but that's not free speech. I want to bring in Alyssa Freeman. She is a regular on here, usually with Scott Thompson, but she is a PR and pop culture expert. And uh, Alyssa, we tried to keep it easy by just changing the last name of the guest you can, or the host. You can still call me Scott and it all works. So thanks for doing this today.
2: <laughs> well, you, you know what? That does help. It, it helps especially when, you know, you're talking about generational. It helps, you know, it helps me remember. But anyways, <laughs> glad to be here, Scott.
0: Is this, when you see a survey that says that half of Canadians basically say some of our free speech freedoms are our, our, our freedom of expression freedoms are going away it's not as easy to speak freely about stuff now does that surprise you or is that really what you would have expected
2: well I think it is you know given what's going on I think it is what I would have expected you know there's been a lot more talk about uh, restricting uh, speech especially on social channels but Really, Scott, I think that you brought up the most important point of this survey is the generational lines. So if you take someone like me, who let's just put me in a very broad category, who was 35 and older versus somebody who was 35 and younger, I think that... We are now feel very measured in our speech, um, you know, for better or for worse. You know, maybe there were just some phrases and things that we were saying that were fine. But really, you know, they were no longer fine. Uh, They're no longer fine. And there's a good reason why they're not fine. So I think that, you know, when people of an older generation have to change, I mean, they kind of maybe reckon back to the, you know, the good old days. It didn't matter what came out of your mouth. But now people are more sensitive to that. And while people often say, "Well, it was a different time. this is just the way it was, just because it was a different time doesn't mean that it was right what you were saying, so I'm not surprised at all that people who that older Canadians are looking at the way that we have to talk and we have to think twice about what we say to feel as if that free speech is being somewhat
0: muzzled and, and generation I want to get to d- deeper into the generational thing in just a moment, but the yeah I, I look, I think you're bang on. Um, and I think this discussion to, to say that we can no longer use certain words derogatory phrases those kind of things uh, I, that's that's a positive thing I don't think there's a negative thing to saying certain words that were you know that we know now you would never say uh, you know uh, cracking down and saying that's that if that's freedom of expression your choice but you will suffer the consequences I suppose but it does seem when you talk about social media it has very much become a blood sport though that, that, that where I think a lot of people in this poll are looking is there's not room for a lot of reasonable or rational discourse or calm discussion on controversial issues. It's just shouting and doing it in short snippets that allow no room for context.
2: Well, there's a couple of issues here that you raise. First of all, it's the shouting. Sometimes the shouting happens by a very vocal minority. Um, that are just bandwagon jumping on issues and decide that this is their issue of the week, so they do a lot of shouting. Um, Sometimes it's done by political figures. As you know, I mean, listen, for the news for four years, we never had to come up with topics because Donald Trump did it for us. All you had to do was read his tweets every day. And I think what Canadians are thinking is, you know, I can make up my own mind as to what I believe and what I don't believe. And I don't need uh, a higher authority to censor my my thoughts. I don't need a higher authority to censor what I could be reading. I can make up my own mind. And so based on that, I mean, you know, uh, there is a lot of this regulation coming in now because of the proliferation of hate speech. and the the survey does go into that. And people you know, I think that you know people understand that you know that that's an issue. But I think when it comes to the kind of content, it depends where you fall, maybe on the political um, spectrum, it depends, you know how you're brought up and and what you think and what you believe. But I think that there are many people who feel that their rights and freedoms are being put upon by having higher authorities or just authorities decide that they're going to decide what you see and what you read.
0: Well, and again, uh, you know what, you, you raised two really interesting points there because there's two different things here. One is the official government position that would say, you know, we're going to govern hate speech. Of course, defining what would qualify as hate speech becomes a challenge all by itself. Nonetheless, you've got the the rules. The, the other side, though, is when you don't necessarily know what the rules are until you've posted something and suddenly the mob has decided you've broken the rules that weren't really written down and you're the one now in the line of fire. That, I think, is what terrifies a lot of people.
2: Well, there is no criteria. Yeah, there is no criteria for this, is there, Scott? I mean, this is sort of like what turns people the wrong way. And if it seems to turn people the wrong way, then, then it's categorized. And it's either dismissed, it's it's removed, or it's allowed to, allowed to stay. So, you know, who is making those decisions, number one? Number two, what's the criteria that they're using to make those decisions? So one group may say, well, this is not hate, hate speech. This is what we think the truth is. And the other group may say, this is absolutely hate speech. We feel put it on. And where this really starts to filter down is especially in our academic uh, institutions, especially on university campuses, where there are professors who are to talk about certain world events because, you know, know, people, people get upset about them. Well, I mean, you know, if you don't have context to the, the, the reason that we are in the world or we, we are uh, global conflict is in the way it is today, you know, you need historical context. And so what we see on university campuses is, is really a tampering down of, of free speech. And this started about, I would say, about five years ago when there were certain speakers, conservative speakers that were coming up from the states and they were told to stay home. So you may not agree with that opinion, but I think that uh, if it's not about spewing hate, then it's important to see both sides.
0: And that I think goes to what you started with, which is the generation gap. And this, this poll certainly shows that. This poll certainly shows there is a generation gap in what people perceive as free speech or whether free speech is being chipped away at. And, and you're right. I mean, university campuses is, is a great example um, of, you know, it, it seems very, I think, normal now that you would say if someone is coming to university with whom you disagree, it's it's entirely normal and acceptable to say, we demand that that person not have the right to speak here. 15, 20, 25 years ago, that would have been unfathomable. We would have been saying, no, university campuses are where you come to offer opinions that are out of outside the norm or different from yours to hear a different worldview.
2: Right. and and I think that when you start having uh, professors that are being censored or professors that have other professors that don't you know want to hear what they have to say, and that is happening right here right now. I mean, you know, I've heard of examples of it myself, And I just look at it and I am obviously in that other older generational part of this, and I just shake my head and thinking, I mean, okay, so you don't agree. Well, are you teaching the course? you think this person should be censored? And, and you know, it, it comes down to, and I hate to make it sound like this, you know, everybody is afraid of hurting other people's feelings right now. And I'm not saying that we, should, we shouldn't we um, should be mindful of other people's feelings, but I think, you know, a lot of speech is being tamped down because, you know, the person, go, you know, I like turtles. Well, how dare you say you don't like turtles? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm shook to the core, you didn't like turtles. And why did you want to talk about turtles? Why did you put in snakes? So, I mean, that's a little bit flip. But it is kind of what's going on. And I, only know, a little only
0: bit. Only a little
2: bit. bit. <laughs> well, I think a lot of it. I think the left is having a little bit of a field day. Not that I'm such a, so so far to the right, but I think the left is having a little bit of a field day with this. And But I think that a lot of people are looking at it and going, this is crazy. I mean, really, this is crazy. You've just got to you know, let's just exercise common sense here. And I think in a lot of places, common sense is really window.
0: Now, I I don't want to be, you know, you and I are probably, well, both in the over 35 category, let's put it that way, (laughs) as you delicately stated it. Um, (laughs) Once upon a time, when we were growing up, I will be betting money that you either heard or even used the phrase, as a child, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Now, we talked about this the other day on the show. There are some names that do hurt, That's you know, and we, we understand that. We're not saying there's no such thing as mental health or emotional health, but it, it does seem as though if you're looking at this survey, those in the under 35 category would say that phrase is not just a little wrong. That's entirely wrong. All words that I disagree with will hurt me. Therefore, we must stop all those kinds of words.
2: Well, I think that any time you get too extreme, that there's backlash, and you know, this is all having a moment right now, and I would hope. I would really hope that it doesn't get to that extreme where we have to sit there and only you know, ask somebody how they are. Or should I do that? Should I ask how they are or how, should I not? So I think that what we're, you know, as long as we can be civil to one another, as long as we can be open to discourse, as long as we can be open to making up our, our own minds about, um, you know, world issues. And, and I will agree that there are, you know, when you talk about social media, it is not a level, level playing field. Listen, you can sponsor messages, you can, uh, you know, you can get bots to repeat messages. You have like these sort of, sort of Russian bot farms, apparently, that just start spewing all sorts of misinformation along, um, you know, political channels and hoping of influencing a, an election. So, I think that people are more afraid of the insidious threat on social platforms than they are of uh, actual discourse. So, you know, everybody looked at the Internet as this great way of sharing and communicating and connecting, but it does have a dark uh, underbelly, and we continue to see that. It is almost impossible to manage, so therefore you get in this sort of notion about regulation, and I guess the easiest thing is to talk about regulating hate which is still regulating free speech, but, you know, regulating what we see in terms of absolute pure hatred. And I think that if Canadians understood what the criteria was for removing content and where it fell and that it wasn't just sort of like willy-nilly that this is not what I like today, but this is what I like tomorrow, I think that we would feel a little bit better about such types of regulations.
0: Yeah, the danger to me in this one, and look, again, I may sound like the old man to those in the younger group that, uh, that think that things are going just hunky-dory along here, but is it's clear from the survey that those who are a little older say, the fear is there that if I put my head up and I'm a tall poppy, uh, I get my head lopped off if I happen to speak on some controversial issue. And I think it's it's imperative for a society to be able to talk about controversial issues rather than having everybody fearful to bring them up lest they might be blasted?
2: Well, I think so. And and obviously you and I fall in the same age range. But, you know, when you talk to younger Canadians, it, this is just what they know, Scott.
3: Yeah. This is yeah. just
2: what they know. So therefore, I think it's really up to us to really sort of push those um, envelopes of free speech and to teach the younger generation, that it's important to hear both sides, even though you might find it a little bit off-putting, but if you're going to form opinion, you really have to look at things holistically. You have to look at things from all sides, because you just, and a lot of people do this, they just form an opinion based on one side, and we see that around many conflicts around the world. This is just what I think, so therefore it is what it is. And, you know, we, we see this with uh, when you see people on social media, um, you know, talking about global conflicts in ways with with stats that are wrong or with conjecture and, and not much research. So, you know, social media has also given rise to the, well, I'm just going to put it out there and, and let it land. And I think that, you know, people have to be more mindful, especially if they have large platforms of what they're saying. You know, nobody's fact checking really anymore. It's all about get out first, get out fast. And even the media will get up first and say, "Okay, they'll they'll correct later." I mean, how many times do you go on a a, a news site to see an article and say that it was either updated? And updated can mean a number of things, Scott. It can mean that they added For information sure. or they took away and corrected information. So that whole notion of getting out right and uh, not necessarily being first is 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 a long is a long ago though thought. And now we're sort of living with the consequences of living in a in a society where 24-7 information is the norm and the faster you can get it out and the faster we consume it is the way we live.
0: Uh, you know what? You just said when it's what you think is what's the reality. I just got to thinking as you said that if Descartes had been alive today, he wouldn't have said, I think therefore I am. He would have said, I think therefore it is. <laughs> I'm Isn't not that, sure.
2: That's... That is very clever.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I think I...
2: He would have said, I think therefore it is. I
0: think, I think exactly. <laughs> but, but if you, but if you say otherwise, I will crush you. So, you know, it's, it comes a much longer, more cumbersome statement. He may not have been so famous if that had happened. Uh, Alyssa Freeman, always love having you on the show. Thanks for taking time today. Have a great weekend. Okay. Thanks for having me on YouTube, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show
1: podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I want to talk about Olympics though, because ratings for the Olympics. Despite, you know, despite all the stuff that we've been talking about on the show, we were just finished talking about Canadian greats, Canadian moments. We're talking this morning about Canada's women winning gold in soccer, which was an amazing uh, event and an amazing television experience for all of us who are watching from home. The other people, Andre de and the women's swimmers and all these like great moments that people are talking about and feeling really good about. But the ratings on television for these games have not been good. In some cases, rather horrendous. Here in Canada, and now as of a couple days ago, things could be a little different after the women's soccer today, because I think they probably got great viewership. But as of a couple days ago, ratings were down like 27% from Rio five years ago. But that number, those numbers are glorious compared to what we're hearing south of the border, where There was a report, I think in the Washington Post or LA Times or something just the other day, said that ratings were down 45% from Rio, 51% in primetime. Half the audience has vanished. A quarter of the Canadian audience, half the American audience is gone. This this doesn't sound good. The question is, is this some sort of permanent thing or is this a blip on the radar? I want to bring in Robert Thompson, who um, the... The analyst on pop culture on television, the director and founder of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University, a guy we'd love having on the show here. Robert, thanks for doing this today. Thank you for having me. When you hear numbers, especially in the States, that fifty-one percent or something like that of the primetime audience has vanished from one Olympics to the next, that sounds like the sky is falling a little bit for NBC, is
3: it?
1: Well, uh this has certainly not been uh what they wanted the Olympics to be back when they uh first started planning uh, uh them when they thought they were gonna be in twenty twenty. Uh but we should look at a number of numbers. Yeah, it is down a lot from the last uh, uh Olympics and depending on the night in prime time you look it can it can rise up to sixty percent down. But for one thing Everything is going down. Every single month, more people subscribe to more services, which means they have more choices. Uh, you know, when I was a kid watching the Olympics, uh, there were three channels, uh, and it was the most interesting thing, uh, on. Even Super Bowl, which, which seemed immune from, uh, declining ratings in the age of streaming, even it seems to have peaked a few years ago and is going down. So, in some ways, I think this just may be a fact of life as people have, uh, more choices. The other thing is, we're tending to look at the Olympics ratings in terms of the primetime TV ratings, which are still very important, a big chunk of uh, uh, ad income uh, and all the rest of it. But NBC Universal is putting these Olympics everywhere. They just came out with a statistic that says, uh, uh, over all the various platforms, uh, the Olympics have generated more than a hundred billion minutes of viewing now that number is hard for me even to grasp but it's not like people aren't watching this and finally even though the ratings are way down every single night they're beating all the competition by uh, by a lot
0: yeah well let's start with some of those things you just said because streaming um People are cutting the cord, and the—I mean, I suppose the good news here is that streaming numbers seem to be doing pretty well. And, and I, I start to wonder with that, with people cutting the cord, and with this, are we just seeing the future happen in front of us right now?
1: Yeah, I think we're seeing in all kinds of places, and especially if you talk to young people. My students, uh, uh, between, what, the age of 18 and about 23, uh, during uh, the school year, uh, they don't even go home to a dormitory or an apartment or wherever they live. Uh, they don't have a TV set there. They're watching almost, uh, most of them, almost exclusively, uh, watching stuff on streaming. And it's not just TV, of course, uh, movies. COVID accelerated this, uh, but it was something that was happening happening anyway. Uh, all, every single movie that was nominated for the Oscars this past year, I saw this year, and I didn't see a single one of them in a, uh, in a huh. theater. So, yes, I think the Olympics are the sign of uh, changes that are being made across the board, and it's hard to compare this Olympics in streaming with last Olympics in streaming because that was five years ago, and a lot has happened in streaming since then.
0: A lot happens in about seven minutes in the streaming world, it seems. You it seems everything changes. You
1: are precisely right about that. The 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 technological environment of television is going to be different when you and I hang up than it was when you and I started.
0: But, Bob, what does this mean, then, for the Olympics as a movement? Because if, if TV as we've known it, which is where the advertising dollars are is no longer the giant here. Uh, we know unless something continues to really change, there's not the same advertising dollars available in streaming is the Olympics looking at this and saying our cash cow, the golden goose is, uh, is about to wither away here.
1: Well, I don't think they're seeing that's going to wither away. Uh, the goose may be laying fewer eggs uh, as we move uh, uh, on uh, Olympic after Olympic, and uh, what NBC I think has the rights to this until about 2032. I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So it's not going to go away, and again, if you look at the nightly ratings, while the Olympics are down considerably, they're still beating everything else that's uh, being put up uh, against it, although there's not a lot of competition uh, at this point. So they're not going to go away. I think there may be some uh, uh, economies of scale that begin to be... Uh, applied uh, and even at some point, I think uh, uh, countries are going to have to rethink uh, uh, the kinds of commitments they make in uh, uh, in trying to get these, uh, uh, you know, Olympic games to come to their city and the massive expenditures uh, that they uh, they put forth uh, to do that. Of course, uh, Tokyo, especially uh, unfortunate for them, in that they put out these enormous cap- capital expenditures for, uh, you know, in the hopes that you're going to get these masses of people come uh, to the country to see the Olympics. And then, of course, they can't let any of them in.
0: And it's not just TV when you talk about cutting expenses or looking to cut expenses. I mean, the the, the, the number of media who are attending right now, especially from North America and from a lot in Europe, way down. I mean, it, newspapers and radio stations and even TV stations have cut way back on the number of people who were over there. They're covering it from home.
1: Right. And, they, and that's another change is they can do that. And, uh, very few people had kind of taken the big step. But once again, COVID accelerated something that was already, uh, going to happen. Uh, all of these people, you know, guests that used to be in the studio of, uh, 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 TV news show, shows and everything. Uh, we got used to seeing the lower picture quality of Zoom. And I don't think that's going to go away. And you're right. Technology now allows us to cover, uh, uh, this uh, stuff remotely, and we're still in the process of all this change, which means television, the movies, the Olympics, pretty much everything is uh, in a state of flux and is certainly not settled. I think the bottom line, though, is that people are going to continue to watch sports. Down here, Football has the top ratings uh, uh, by far over everything else every single year, year after year after year. I don't think that's going to go away. Uh, I think people are going to still continue to watch the Olympics. It's just that it's going to be a lot different than it was. Uh, I remember the first Olympics I really paid attention to was 1972 in Munich, um, And there, the only place you could see the Olympics was if you watched it on ABC television. Nobody else had it, so everybody was watching the same thing at the same time. And there was a finite amount of programming. You could actually watch most Olympic programming and maybe even keep a job while doing it. Uh, (laughs) Now, of course, that's impossible. You couldn't watch all of what NBC is putting out there um, even close in the course
0: of a 24-hour day. Well, and and like you mentioned, Munich. I mean, in the worst possible way, those were games that had a level of drama that we've almost never seen before again. For the for the worst possible reasons, with the yeah, terrorist oh, attack yeah. and the and, and it, I mean, I don't know if Munich for that reason, Robert. I don't know if that was the thing that really launched the Olympics into must see TV. Not expecting that that was going to happen again, but like every, everybody was glued to that for sports but also for the news that was developing
1: it became the biggest story on planet earth and it was being covered exclusively in the very beginning anyway by abc sports people jim mckay and uh chris Schenkel, because they they had exclusive access uh uh, to the olympic village and everything um I think 72 was a big year and that probably had something to do with it. The Olympics were already becoming pretty big business though. Uh uh the 1964 Tokyo Olympics were in fact covered on television uh in the United States anyway. Um and by 1968 that was becoming kind of the norm, but I think 72 76, the 1970s, uh, ABC really goosed up uh, the amount of attention and time, uh, and we had a lot of good stories during that uh, period, both Summer Olympics and uh, Winter Olympics. Uh, Not not just the horrible news story we were talking about, but uh, by the time we get to 1980, the miracle on ice in the Winter Olympics, uh, that kind of thing. So I think that 70s decade really did what the first Olympics in the U.S. was, I think, 1904 in St. Louis, and it was just kind of attached to the World's Fair.
0: Yeah, and, and the timing. I mean, for, as you say, 72 into 76 in Montreal. 80, we had the boycott in Montreal in uh, in Moscow, but you had the oh, right, the right, miracle right. on ice. But then 84, you've got L.A., which was probably the biggest splash, biggest step forward as far as the Olympics. I mean, that with the Peter Uberoff Games, that, was, that made it enormous. That made it that it was all-encompassing
1: and then i think you're right those were really the kind of the years in which this got bigger and bigger and bigger almost to the point of unmanageability the numbers now that get paid uh for olympic rights the amount of advertising that has to be generated to justify that but you know a network does get more than just uh advertising income. For example, NBC uh which has just launched Peacock not that long ago, uh certainly expects uh, uh the, the Olympics to be a major way to get people to add Peacock to their already growing number of uh, Netflix and Hulu and mm. Prime and all the rest of it. So that was an extra uh, thing that the Olympics brought. Uh, and it's a great time to uh, uh, promote all your new shows for the fall season. Back in 76, ABC was floundering in third place. It completely packed the Olympics with uh, promos for its uh, new fall shows. And before they knew it, they were in first place in primetime after the
0: Olympics. Let's go through. You mentioned the streaming, and I, I, I certainly think you're bang on on that one. That's had a huge effect. But there are other things people are pointing to why numbers might be down. Uh, the time difference, that, that the 13-hour t- the time difference that, by the way, nobody seems to be able to figure out whether it's 13 hours ahead or behind or what. that has to have an impact on this.
1: It does, and it's why the uh, 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 television uh, uh, operations over here Always don't like it when Olympics are held over there. They always prefer it when they're in Los Angeles or they're uh, in uh, Montreal or they're someplace uh, nearby, uh, uh, because that is a and especially now. Once upon a time, as long as you didn't turn on news radio, uh, you know you got your newspaper in the morning. Uh, you could actually not hear what happened over there uh, uh, 13 hours earlier. Now, I swear, by the time. Simone Biles was performing on the vault on prime time That story seemed like ancient history. Um, and I think that that is uh, becoming more and more of, a, uh, of an issue because people have access to 24 hour news of what's going on in, in so many different ways. So, what let, let's count the things this Olympics had going against it big time difference. Uh, no, no audience, uh, or Spectators uh, uh, in the venues, um, already kind of a downer sort of reporting, and we weren't even sure it was going to happen. Losing uh, some of the major athletes for one reason, uh, uh, one reason or another, there were a lot of things that were kind of stacked up against this Olympics, uh, uh, pretty much from the uh, from the very start.
0: What, what do you think? of? I mean, you, you mentioned the downer. That's an interesting one too. I mean, we're coming out of a pandemic. It's been pretty tough. People may be down. You would think maybe a big rah-rah moment might pull you out of that one. Uh, but there seems to be two things that would go along with that. One is, especially in your country right now, um, you know, th- things are pretty divided and there are a lot of people who seemingly that we see on the news don't feel they should or can be rah-rah for the states. I don't know how much that impacts it. And B, You have to have, to be raw, raw, you have to have a really good performance by your countrymen to do that. Now, up here in Canada, it's been a pretty good Olympics, been a very good Olympics. The States has not had a very strong Olympics, relatively speaking. Does that hurt? The fact that the performance isn't what it always is.
1: No, that, that is true. It, it's a whole bunch of... And this is true with any sports. You know, depending on which team are in this uh, uh, the World Series makes a big difference as to what its uh, uh, numbers are. Super Bowl, it doesn't seem to matter, but that's a whole other... Uh, that's in a category uh, all of itself. What I meant by, by downer, though, was the whole idea that for so long it was almost expected. People were doing pre-reports about how these Olympics, if they happened at all, were going to you know, be totally different that weren't going to be as good and all of that. And you know, as it turns out, uh, I'm watching. For example, when I watch swimming events, uh, I can watch a half hour of swimming and totally forget that there aren't a lot of people uh uh in the bleachers. It's you know, that basically the Olympics is a television show. And while there are certainly some uh events that really do miss the audience, uh an awful lot of uh uh, uh awful lot of Olympic events that we've seen on T V before are not packed to the brim with people. There are not a lot of spectators. Uh some sports in fact uh really don't need spectators at all.
0: Let me throw one more. we got time for one more. And this is my theory, and it could be totally wrong, but I'm going to throw it out there. You're the expert. So tell me that I'm completely out of my mind or onto something here. Live sports have always been pretty much um, the magical elixir because people don't want to record it. As you say, you want to watch the sports live. It's got the drama. You don't want to know the outcome. So that's why advertisers have always gone to this. But for now, I don't know, probably since 84, more and more and more and more, We've gone to the pre-packaging, not live sports. We've gone to the prime time pre-packaging to make it look like a reality show rather than just the event. And that seems like we're taking away or TV is taking away its advantage and moving it towards the thing that it knows doesn't work as well.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think there was a brief moment, in fact, where those packages, those up close and personal, you know, you know you'd be watching a sport you'd never heard of before, and in... Five minutes, you'd care deeply about it because you'd find out the athlete's father had just died, and she's dedicating, I mean, all this stuff that would, uh, uh, would get you into it. That, I think, was really working in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. Now I think you're right. The one thing that sports has over Game of Thrones and over all this other fancy uh, uh, TV that's coming out, is it is still something that is best watched live. And we haven't even brought up the issue of gambling, which is a major reason why a lot of people watch sports on TV
0: yeah it is uh it is fascinating let's let's hope i mean certainly you know the the numbers that we're seeing i don't think they can pull out of the funk completely uh but especially again up here with the women's soccer this morning i'm sure there's going to be enormous numbers which will definitely help overall robert thompson from the Blyer school uh center for television and popular culture at syracuse university we always love having you on the show thanks for doing this today can't wait for our next conversation You're
1: listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Let me go to this, uh, this survey. It's not a survey. It was a study that was done. It's a group in the States called the Commonwealth fund, which looks into healthcare issues and has interests in healthcare issues. And it decided to take a look and do some studying about 11 advanced high income countries around the world, how they were doing with healthcare. Uh, United Kingdom, Germany, New Zealand, Sweden, France, Switzerland, Norway, the Netherlands, Australia, Canada, and the States. Now, you have a group that decides to study results from healthcare. How do you think Canada did in that? Out of 11, how do you think we did? You might be surprised because according to them, the answer was not all that well. Now, this is only 11 countries. Relative to much of the world, we're doing probably very, very well. But in these countries, we didn't do so well. Now, and just before we get any further along, lest you think this is just an American company dumping on Canada to make its own country look good in the healthcare world, uh, not the case. And It in fact found the US was 11th out of 11. So the American study put America in last place in this one. But Canada came only one spot ahead of the states. What do we take from this? I want to bring in Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid. Now you're saying, wait a second, I know that name. Yes, you do, because Dr. Firas Khalid has been on our show and on Scott Thompson's show many times over the COVID era, if we're going to call it that, uh, talking about COVID. But he is, first and foremost, a health policy expert and advisor and a lecturer on health systems and policy, as well as a medical doctor. Uh, He joins us now. Doctor, thank you for doing this, and thanks for branching out and talking about something non-COVID today. We appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If I look at this study and I see the, the pricey review of what this is, the takeaway here that they seem to be saying is that here in this country, we have a reasonably poor ratio of performance to spending meaning we spend a lot but we don't get the results that would be commensurate with that level of spending would you agree with that i would agree with that i think the report what it says to all of us is not really surprising
4: it tells us that there are major health inequities that exist in our canadian context and we've known that for a very long time Uh, i think that you know what they're trying to get at here is that the social services provision to people that need it the most in canada that might have a huge impact on health outcomes simply are not up to par with other countries what do we mean by that we mean that you know single parents who need support so they can access health care services because they have nobody to take care of their children that is absent after hours care p- parents who work late hours and can't access their family primary health care provider during working hours don't have another resource to access medical professionals. We also know that telehealth and telemedicine is severely lagging in our country and we need massive investments to ensure people who live in remote areas or rural areas have access to health care. So the findings in this report are not that surprising. They're just magnifying some of the issues that the system has been dealing with for a very long time. And just to add one more last thing on this, when we compare ourselves to the US, the report did make a very important finding, which is that you know, although we are right uh, ahead of the U.S. by one spot, we're actually the difference between us and the U.S. is still huge. Why? Because we have a public healthcare system, a universal health care system, while the U.S. has more of a two tiered model
0: we'll get to that one in a second about the comparison, yeah. but just the general sense of this though, Dr. Kari, uh, Khalid. Dr. Khalid. Thank you. Khalid. I, you know what? I, it was the fr- I We've had you on how many times and I've never got the name. Today I was know, the first. anyway. all
4: good. It's all good.
0: Um, this, this study seems to though fly very much in the face of the Canadian pride about our system. Mm-hmm. We talk about this as if we have the greatest system in the world. I think a lot of people would be shocked to have someone who is outside looking at this independently say, well, n- n- no, you really don't. You're right, actually. You're absolutely correct in that. That, uh, that
4: You know, anybody who's not within the system, I mean, you have to remember, I'm a health system policy expert, so I do this and I'm very familiar with the data. But you're right, people who are outside the system who don't understand the expertise that are involved in how the system functions, I do find this surprising and hence why it has made headline news. Why? Because we take pride. One of the things that Canadians value the most is our healthcare system. Why? Because it's free access, right? Not, you don't pay with your credit card, you pay with your health card. That's a famous saying by a former prime minister of ours. And so the point there is that although we're not, you know, being slapped with a gigantic bill when we go to a hospital, we need services. When you speak to people who are actually needing those services on a daily basis, people with chronic diseases, people who are homeless, who live in rural areas, in low socioeconomic status, they could tell you horrific stories about challenges they face in accessing care in our system. So although the majority of us are, are, for the most part, healthy and we only access our system when we need it the most, we're not seeing the real challenges that are presented in our system. And that's why the support can be actually very telling because it's telling us the problems are not so much about, you know, the average person out there. This, the problems really magnified when people who need it the most people who need healthcare services the most are not the ones who are actually getting it in our system right now.
0: Yeah. And it seems as though, and my experience certainly has been, and I hear this from a lot of people when we talk healthcare, if you have an emergency, if you show up at hospital with a heart attack or having a stroke or been in a car accident, you're going to get in very quickly. They're going to look after you. It's when you're the one, as you say, who needs a knee replacement or needs to have, you know, some other thing that's not urgent, but you want to get done. That's where you're going to find the weights. Yes, emergency wait
4: times are one of the biggest health policy issues we face in Canada right now. People are waiting exceptionally long time in hospitals, ERs, to access care. Uh, People who need chronic disease management is a big issue. You know, the wait times to get specialist care in Canada, especially after COVID, where we had a stop on follow-up appointments, is very, very long. I mean, this is talk to people out there, talk to patients. They will share with you those stories. You know, do we do well in terms of affordability? Sure. You know, people don't have to pay for their healthcare services. That's a huge blessing. And we should be very proud of that. And we should preserve and protect the system for what it does, which is that it prevents you from going into a huge financial burden that people in the U.S., for example, are suffering from. They go to a doctor's appointment. They are slapped with thousands and thousands of dollar bills. That's not the case here. However, we still have a lot of issues to face in terms of inequities. There are people who really need care in our country that simply are not getting it. And we need to reform our system in a way that thinks creatively from taking lessons from other countries like Norway, who is ranked number one in this report on what we can do better.
0: The idea though, that we have, let's dive into a really, this is a philosophical question. Maybe the fact that we have these long waits in emergency rooms. Mm -hmm. Is that because we don't have a good system or because we don't pay up front with a credit card, as you say, more people go to the emergency room than might not otherwise because they know they're not going to have to pay, which then creates lineups because now you have to triage everybody who might not otherwise have been there.
4: It's not actually attached to payment because when we look at other countries who've ranked very high Uh, They also have a similar model in the sense that people don't pay with their credit card. However, what they've done better was that they've structured their system in a way that gets at inequities. And so when we talk about health systems, we're talking, think of it as a house. Every uh, part of that house or the pillars of the house is part of the building block of a system. And so one of them is access to care. Can we build systems in place that? People who need care don't necessarily need to go to the ER. Let me give you an example. You live in a neighborhood in Hamilton where you need uh, access to your family doctor because you have the flu. Your family doctor doesn't have after hours. They finish their last appointments at 5 p.m. You're getting the flu at 7. You're feeling a bit bad. You need to see the doctor so you don't have to go to work tomorrow. What are you going to do? You're going to go end up in our ER, correct? Because there's nowhere else for you to get that care. This is why the system is delayed because... We haven't built community-based supports. We haven't built after hours. We haven't strengthened our telehealth. So when we talk about where can we spend this massive money that we get on our health care, we need to think carefully and strategically about where we need to be investing our resources so our system really gets at the people who need the care the most.
0: Mm-hmm. But as this study points out, and there was another study that was, I think, about a year ago from the Fraser Institute, which came to basically the same conclusion, looked at slightly different things, but similar conclusions. It's not a shortage of spending that we have. We spend, I think, exactly. the second most after Switzerland on healthcare. So why are we spending so much, but where's that money going that we're then not getting the results? In the policy world, we call this
4: policy legacies. And what that means is that because we've been spending money at the same place, for so long without thinking about how we can better spend that money, we got stuck in this legacy or past dependency work. So you know, right now, this report and the Fraser report, as you rightly pointed out, has said that we spend a lot of money. The issue here is not money. The issue here is that where is that money being spent? And so we need, as a society and as policymakers who are in charge of that spending of that money, to think critically about how can we reform the system instead of spending all our money on hospitals which is currently where the budget is maybe we should be actually spending our money on building better community outreach clinics strengthening our telemedicine and telehealth building web portals to facilitate patient engagement so patients can feel connected with their providers they don't need to see the provider in in a clinic setting but they can communicate with the provider through technology we need to also think about dental care There's many things that we can be improving. The question becomes is that we need leadership to be able to really examine
0: where that money is being spent. And I would bet money, not that I have a lot of it, (laughs) but I would bet money that if your suggestion was ever going to be followed by politicians, and if they listened to experts like you, and you said, look, we spend lots, but we need to do more in, as you say, dental and community health and all these things, the move that a politician would make would not be to say, all right, let's take the pot of money that we spend now and redirect it. The answer would be, Let's keep the pot and add way more to it and spend all of it on these new things, which I don't know that that really solves the problem because now we just have more money flowing in and still being caught up in bureaucracies and bad decisions and not knowing where to put it.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is you're speaking about the intersection of politics and science, and this is why more and more of us scientists, experts, health policy experts are actually getting into politics. Because we realize now that there is a void and there is a gap that we need to fill, that the two skill sets need to be merged together, because you're absolutely right, there are political decisions being made on health. We saw that with COVID, we saw it with our overall health system, and I think that's why there's been a call for scientists to get more involved in politics, so we can help inform those decisions that have impact on the outcomes
0: of people's health status. Do you think that a skilled, even a skilled politician could make the case to the public that, We're going to close a few hospitals, but we're going to set the money to other things that are going to work better. Do you think that you could convince the public that would work, even if it would? Well, yes, I think you can. And this is what knowledge translation is all about.
4: How do you communicate to the public that what you're trying to do serves their needs? I mean, our Canadian demographic is exceptionally smart and intelligent. There are, you know, we know that we know when we survey Canadians, they understand the intricacy and the nuances of the system and the need for reforms across the platforms. Why? Because they're accessing it. You know, Canadians are accessing their system in different capacities throughout their lifespan. They have a mother or a grandfather who's accessing the services on a daily basis. They know the challenges are there and the need for reform. What they, what, they, What is missing currently is their engagement in that process. So we're calling on politicians to engage patients, to engage the Canadians in those decisions because they know best what what would serve their health needs the most.
0: I don't want to be insulting, but there's one, and it's not to you at all anyway, but I mean, there's one other thing that I think becomes a real challenge here because of all these things that have been in place for so long, we have a very entrenched bureaucracy in these areas. That you would then have to, again, if you're a government leader or someone, have to tell these people who are, many of them, very highly paid that, you know what, your life is about to change considerably. We want you doing something completely different. That's not an easy thing to do.
4: No, it's not an easy thing to do, but it might be the necessary thing to do. The alarms and the reports that are coming out of our Canadian healthcare system, like I said at the beginning, are not surprising. Those are challenges and gaps that we've identified over and over again. The difference is is that we need leadership to be able to create the reform needed. And so uh, for that to happen, we need scientists to talk and have conversations with politicians to show them the evidence, to explain to them the impact this has on Canadians. And we need the politicians in the same hand, the policymakers, to involve scientists in that conversation, to help them guide their decision-making and involve the patients at the core of this. I mean, at the end of the day, it's patients first, right? We need to think about the patients and what best to
0: serve them. And it's a very tricky, I know you're not a politician, but it's a tricky thing politically, because if you were to follow your advice and the other experts advice, you would essentially be saying, admitting that you've been doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. which, you know, no politician wants to stand up there when they go to be reelected and say, yeah, we're redistributing all of our money because we've screwed it all up, not screwed it up, but we haven't been doing it as well as we could. It's almost something, again, trying to play the political game, it's almost something that a party has to do right when they're elected, when they still have time over the next few years to show that something good is happening because I couldn't see any party or any government doing this in the latter half of a mandate for the risk that they feel they would get voted out.
4: Absolutely. And I think that's the issue, right? Like I think a lot of them are concerned. Nobody wants Fear. to touch the healthcare system. They're scared of touching it because they know how much Canadians value it.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I look I absolutely agree. And and I, I I don't know how we then get the governments to listen to the experts. If the experts are saying with some sort of common voice that this is you know, look at these studies you can go around and have your stump speeches and talk about how great our healthcare system is. But if the independent studies are saying it's not that good, why are you still saying this? Let's fix it.
4: Yeah. And I think it's going to take mobilization of communities, whether it's scientific communities or political parties. And and you bring up a good point there that, you know, we see this mostly happen during electoral campaigns or elections where, you know, parties, political parties will make stands or comments about the healthcare system very sensitively, very carefully. They're trying to navigate that conversation. We know the NDP caucus is pushing for pharmacare among other healthcare issues. And every political party on their own will decide where they want to stand with healthcare. But for the most part, they try to stay away from it because they know how complicated
0: that is. Yeah. It, it is a, um, it, it is, it is a really difficult one. And I, and I just, I don't understand. I don't get how we make this move forward. I don't get how we create the, the traction to have experts followed as opposed to, you know, or the right experts. Maybe, maybe that, maybe that's the thing because I'm sure there's experts all over the place telling people what they want to hear.
4: Yeah. And I think COVID-19 is probably providing that window of opportunity now. Right. I think that people now realize the need for scientific experts to be helping guide the policies. We saw that with COVID. There's a momentum here. Now we just need to capture that momentum and move forward, making sure that we have experts that can help advise policies based on
0: evidence. Let me ask you one more thing before we go, because we are short on time, but one of the very hot button issues that we've seen during the COVID, and it it ties into what we're talking about, but during the COVID era is long-term care beds and the shortage of long-term care beds here in Ontario. But if you are a, a, a politician, an, an expert, whomever, and you are directing money, you can say, we need to build 20,000 long-term care beds because of our aging population. But in 20 years, because of the way the population is, those beds may not be necessary anymore because the, the baby boomers and even the Gen X might be starting to go. So Do we have to look at something that is sustainable or do you have to run a healthcare system that may change every decade based on who your clientele is? Well, that's it. It's called innovation and
4: development. You know, our systems are not static because the needs of our people change. The needs of people today are different than the needs of people 10 years ago. And so you need to build a system that's adaptable, that is resilient to crises. Long-term care home centers are undergoing a massive crisis at the moment and they require substantial reforms we saw that in the auditor general report we've known about the issues there that's another example where systems need to adapt to the needs of the communities um, and so you need to build in mechanisms to allow for that adoption
0: to happen it is a, uh, it's a fascinating topic. It really, does, uh, it really does shock a lot of people when we hear that our healthcare system that we tell all of our friends and neighbors all over the world about is maybe not quite as functioning at the, quite the peak performance that we like to believe it is. But um, maybe there's hope. There are experts out there. There's ideas out there if we want to follow them. Uh, Dr. Ahmad for, Ahmad for us, Khalid. We always love having you on here. And uh, as I say, thanks for talking about something besides COVID today. That's a, that's a, a rare treat. Of course. Happy to speak anytime. Have a great weekend.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Today's big day. Today is a very big day. Not just because of the women's soccer team. Although I suspect the women's soccer team and the players on that team are celebrating the other reason why today is a big day. Today is international beer day. You think the women on that team are having any celebratory beers? Did you see them by the way, as that game was going along? it was so hot there their shirts looked like they had just jumped in a pool it was it was incredible how hot there is going to be a beer or two consumed I am quite sure in the stadium in Tokyo which fits in perfectly as I say with today being international beer day want to bring in Robin LeBlanc she is a beer expert she's written about beer for over 10 years and she now writes at the Thirsty Wench which She named it. I'm not calling her that (laughs) just in case anyone's tuning in. I didn't choose the name, but that's where she writes. She joins us now. Robin, how are you?
3: I'm great. Thanks for having me on.
0: I really appreciate you doing this. It's uh, Look, I I don't think there's too many people, especially on a day like this, that uh, are going to be unhappy about the thought about a beer. We're probably going to sell some beers at the end of this just by talking about it so much.
3: Oh, I was actually going to say too, what a perfect day for International Beer Day. It's a warm, sunny Friday. Uh Team Canada won on soccer. I mean, it's just amazing.
0: Everything is falling place. Although I do think uh, maybe, you know, today may be perfect, but generally I do think International Beer Day should be on a Saturday. I don't know. Maybe maybe, you know, down the road maybe, but t- today works.
3: I definitely agree with that. Uh, Also, actually, yesterday was uh, International IPA Day as well. So, I mean, it's been a double celebration over here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, those people who are asleep right now were celebrating that International Day yesterday, so they haven't quite come to yet. Um, A week or so ago on this show, you weren't here, but a week or so ago, we were talking about whiskey. Uh, This, for those who are tuning in, is not the all booze show on 900CHML, but at the time, one of the things we mentioned was, and, and with the person who was joining us, whiskey these days is having a bit of a moment. It is it is one of those things like cigars years ago where suddenly whiskey is, is the thing. I'm thinking that it's fair to say probably that craft beer especially is also having one of those moments. It is one of those things to drink right now that is a really cool thing to have in your hand.
3: Oh, definitely. And actually the past 10 years have just been incredible to watch just sort of uh, craft beers boom. If you think, you know, I think let's say when I started writing about beer, which is around... I want to say 2011 or so, uh, you just only had like a handful of breweries, like maybe a little over 100. Now, Ontario alone is reaching about nearly 400 breweries itself. And all the styles have just been coming out. There's just been different trends. All the festivals that, I mean, in the before times anyways, uh, were, were out there. It's It's just incredible to see.
0: And again, we're talking when we're talking about beer. Now, look, lots of people love to drink whatever, but mm-hmm. the thing that has become the really thing to do right now is the small It's not just all beers, it's the small batch stuff. It's it's much cooler and much more adventurous and much more in to be drinking an IPO or something really neat than just sort of grabbing a Molson Canadian. Anyone can do that. That's not what really what we're talking about right now, is the moment.
3: Oh, absolutely. And actually, one of the great things is that, you know, you've, you've definitely seen in the past couple of years or whatever, this really big focus on local. And we've put a focus on local on, you know, stuff like food and, you know, other, other items. But then beer just sort of came along and it became this sort of like local community aspect, you know, just another addition to it. And uh, a lot of breweries are just local community hubs.
0: And it does seem often, especially on social media, the more unknown... If you can find a beer that no one has ever seen before, the more unknown, the better.
3: Uh, there, there is a bit of, uh, I guess, what we call white whale uh, catching, where <laughs> just, just a, just a nice sort of like special release, where you know only let's say fifty bottles were made or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. There's some of that.
0: Yeah, it makes you the connoisseur if you found this and you can show that you've had this. You're special. You're cool.
3: Uh, I, I, I mean, you're 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 definitely you're definitely hip.
0: Why do you think that is right now? What, what, what is it about, again, I mean, look, if someone wants to drink a Molson or a Labatz or whatever, that's fine. But the, the idea of these rarer, more unusual ones, why is that the thing right now?
3: I mean, I, I, I feel that, um, it's, it's less that it's becoming more, uh, rare. I would definitely agree with, uh, unusual stuff, but it's just more of like finding something different, finding something new. Uh, I think, you know, as, as time has gone on, you know, with, with everything that's been happening Uh, we just want to consume new things and just, just figure out, um, where our tastes lie. I mean, you know, if you consider like, but 10 years ago, we just had like maybe an IPA, maybe a lager, well, definitely a lager. And now suddenly everything's exploded with flavor. We've got all these different varieties of beer to try, and it's just fun to, to experiment. It's, it's fun to explore, uh, a, a range of flavors that we've never had a chance to explore before in beer.
0: By the way, did I say IPO a few moments ago? I meant IPA. I must have been thinking about the stock market or something. But anyway, yes. Well, um, actually,
3: an IPL (laughs) exists too, an uh, India Pale Lager. So there you go.
0: IPL, yeah. Okay. Um, It does... Why, though... Why the explosion? Because obviously there's an interest in this, but I would have to assume the interest is following, as you say, the explosion in all these microbreweries. Where has where have all these microbreweries emerged from? Is this just, I know there are now like schools where people can go, is it just people popping out of there? Or what has led to the explosion of all of those places?
3: Ah, oh, that's, that's actually a pretty complicated question to be honest with you. But I think like uh, in, the short of it goes is that it's just this, uh, it, it's now turned, beer is now turned into a luxury product. And, uh, you could, wow. there are several, there, well, there are several factors that could go to that. I mean, like, if you want to go into history and all that stuff, you know, of course you've got like, uh, monks brewing special beers, uh, from back in the day. Uh, but also like in America, you know, the nineties had a big craft beer boom, uh, where, where you just, you know, new stuff other than like an English brown ale or a regular English IPA, which it was a bit, is a bit more malt forward. So it's it's like I said, It really goes back to just that exploration of flavors and it more consumers have been buying that more consumers have been enjoying that. And a lot of people are realizing, hey, maybe there's there's a business out of this.
0: If you had told someone 25, maybe more than that, years ago, sitting with a stubby in the backyard on a summer day that beer would become a luxury item, they might have <laughs> laughed at you. But I think you're right.
3: Yeah. And I, I think it's. I think it's similar to whiskey and wine. You know, yes, these um, whiskey and wine are very more considered, I guess, like high end. But there are also like lower end stuff as well that like are still absolutely enjoyable. You know, so I think beer actually has that same um, aspect to it where there's the affordable, simple done well stuff. And then there's the overly complicated, uh, pricey luxury stuff. But either way, the quality is going to be good.
0: I can't. Ima- I've not done it, obviously, but I can't imagine with all these places starting. It can't be inexpensive to start a microbrewery, though.
3: Oh no, <laughs> uh, we have a joke around here that um, starting a starting a brewery is an easy way to turn two million into one million. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, but 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 that said, I mean, like, uh, it all depends on what you bring to the table. I mean, if you bring uh, a really good measure of, you know, skill as a brewer a good marketing team and and like you just have have this team that essentially works together and works together really well. And it also of course helps if the beer is good, then you're going to be good. You're going to succeed.
0: You better have a real solid belief that what you're producing, that people are going to like it. If you're going to do this though, with with the level of competition that's out there, you better really believe people are going to like this.
3: Exactly. And for that, it's, it's not, It isn't easy to do, you know, uh, being a brewer. I mean, like we we like sort of like um, being romantic about it and saying that it's a very creative thing. And it is it absolutely is. But it's also a science and you need to combine those two really well to make something wonderful. And even the simplest beer can be incredibly complex.
0: The good news, I suppose, for all of those people or many of them, because I'm sure some have failed. But but the good news is people do seem today willing to pay for good beer, for what they perceive to be good beer. People are not being cheap about it. They'll, they'll fork out the money if they think it's worth it.
3: Absolutely. Um, I, I guess another sort of, um, analogy you could probably go with is like a pair of jeans. I mean, yeah, there's, you can buy a cheap chair, pair of jeans for like 10 bucks and it'll be good. It'll, it'll last you for when you need it. But if you spring for maybe the, you know, the 30, 40, 50 pair of jeans, dollar, uh, pair of jeans, that'll bring a lot more quality to the table and it's, it's noticeable too. And the same definitely goes for beer.
0: And you mentioned marketing. Look, if if I were ever to start a microbrewery or a beer company, the first order of business would be to hire the greatest marketing person, create a name that is outrageous, if not just memorable, and then a can that is completely eye-catching because so often, again, social media especially, that seems to be the key for a lot of people. I don't even know if the beer is going to taste good, but if it has a cool name and a cool can, I'm willing to buy it and try it.
3: Well, I'll tell you what – the two factors for a brewery that actually mean a lot to me, that'll make me, you know, want to try it is one, absolutely the the visual aspect. If it looks good, you know, definitely there's an appeal there, but also just what that brewery is doing. I mean, a brewery can't just uh, show up anymore. And a lot of breweries are actually working with the local community, working with local charities and, you know, being very community focused and making their tap room almost like a community hub for that, you know, town or area. And and I think that just um, with this sort of like mind that we're all in this together, I think that's something that's very appealing to me as a consumer.
0: A friend of mine posted something on Facebook yesterday. It was a photo of just their hand holding a can of beer, and it was a mango and passion fruit milkshake IPA. And then I started looking around, and there's cabin fever, blueberry, apricot, sour. Uh, There's monster tears, strawberry, milkshake IPA. There's coconut and key lime IPA, one called... Belma Citra Mosaic Hull Melon uh, uh, DPA with an umlaut over the U in Hull. So I guess it'd be Hull, although I don't know what that is. But these are not the beers that your dad drank in the backyard once upon a time. And it's clear that these are designed to just catch your eye and sound really wild. So I've got to try this. Really, a mango beer? Got to try it.
3: Oh, mango beers are great. I mean, like, even if they have um, actual mango in it or just the great thing too is that we've learned a lot about hops and hops actually imparts a lot of, you know, flavors. So like, for instance, um, galaxy hops, uh, it imparts a lot of tropical flavors. So you'll get a lot of mango in there, you know? So it's really cool just to sort of like experiment with these flavors and actually try something new.
0: Do you think that you have to be a a, a, a sensitive or a, t- um, a trained palate, though, for all this? Because, the, the again, the person, I, I sent a note back to the person after, the, the friend after seeing this picture, I said, does it taste like uh, uh, whatever it was, a mango and passion fruit milkshake. And she said, well, not really, but it's good.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's and that's the thing, right? I mean, you don't necessarily have to have uh, an advanced palate to enjoy uh, some of these beers. I mean, a lot of the times, I mean, you like what you like and whatever you taste, whatever flavors you get are the flavors you're getting, you know? And if you enjoy it, in all honesty, that's what matters.
0: And it has to be working, right? I mean, people it are buying them, so it ha- the, 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 yeah. it has to be working.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: People say, we often hear people now say they like the higher quality ingredients. I'm not, I'm not throwing doubt on all the people. I'm sure there are many people who really can, but do you think everybody can tell the difference between high quality and low quality ingredients in a beer?
3: Well, with that, I mean, also to pull on another analogy, uh, it's like going from waxy Halloween milk chocolate to 75% cacao chocolate. It's one of those things that, yes, I do believe you can actually tell the difference. Um, if, if you could maybe have, like, let's say a, um, a regular Molson, you know, it's good. It's fine. You know, it, it, it works. But then if you have something like, say, uh, a Pilsner or Kell, you know, where, where it's like a, this really nice sort of like Czech lager, it's absolutely beautiful to style. You're going to notice a big difference there.
0: So, so you believe that in a blind taste test, if you were to put out a, a collection of really good and really not so expensive beers, most people could figure out just by tasting it, which one is which?
3: I think uh, a, a case could probably be made for it, for sure. I think it, it depends on um, which ingredients they are, of course.
0: Because because I've wondered this for a long time, because back when, how long ago was it, two years ago now, when the Ontario government allowed that buck of beer thing to go on in the summer um, yeah. here on the show, we had three guys from the station come in and I laid out a blind test of some of the bucka beers up to some really expensive beers. And every mm-hmm. single one of them in a blind taste chose the bucket beer as their favorite. And I went, okay, are they just rubes or, <laughs> or, or was this, or, you know, can, can you not tell unless you're a trained palate? I, I think most people would be able to tell. Um, but I don't know if they would know what it is that, there what is the difference in the taste whether it tastes better or just tastes different
3: well that's that is something that I I do sort of agree with you there it's I think they would be able to tell but maybe they won't have the language to actually be able to say what the difference is for them mm. so it could well, be that. for
0: you for you mm. uh, among the beers that we can get around here what's the best beer you've had I don't know, you weren't prepared for this answer, but I'm sure there's one that just stands out that this is the one that you would say, oh, I would go back in a
3: second. Oh, geez. Uh, I, in all honesty, I mean, you guys open, over in Hamilton have one of the best explosions of craft beer going on right now you, with, with the local stuff. You've got so many good breweries that I wish I was over there now having them. So, I mean, like you've got, for instance, uh, Merritt Brewing, which, I mean, amazing uh, food there as well. But they've got the... oh. I really like their Time and Space IPA with Galaxy. Like I said, that imparts a lot of tropical notes along with a bit of citrus. You've—they uh, also actually have been experimenting with wine here, so they got something called Wild Years. It's a Brett saison uh, with muscat and, ne- and nectarines, which just—it's hmm. that's something for the wine lovers that I think you'll all really, really like. Uh, for so, oh, sorry, go on.
0: No, go ahead, please, go ahead.
3: Oh, uh, for something a bit more simple as well. I mean, like, uh, I think grain and grit beer. Has little thrills, German pils, which is just—it's just a nice little pilsner. It's—it's it's, you know, bright aromas of sourdough, fresh cut grass, granola, honey, uh, little you know, a little bit of Cheerio note in there, along with some lemon zest. It's just beautiful.
0: A few moments ago, we, we mentioned, you know, once upon a time that cigars had its moment. Now, craft beer really, really hot right now. Yeah. Is this a moment? Do, like, Do you think this is sustainable long-term or is this one of those things that in time people will say, you know what, we don't need a hundred micro breweries pumping or maybe more by that time pumping these out. We can pick and choose our favorites. Do you think this is going to last?
3: That's a big question as well. I, I think we're going to reach a point where, I mean, we are already near uh, 400 breweries in Ontario alone. And I wow. think that uh, at the rate of growth that it's going, I don't think that could be necessarily sustainable. I think there's going to be, uh, as the saying goes, I think the cream will rise in some cases and and some of the lesser uh, less, lesser players will probably have to close down. I think, unfortunately, that's just the reality of how things are going. But we're still getting some really, really solid new breweries that have been opening up.
0: It is, uh, it is a favorite topic of an awful lot of people. Let me, uh, let, I mean, there's no question about that. It, it, talking about beer right now, I'm sure there's a lot of people saying, well, when, when's the work day over? I got to get out. It's International Beer Day. We should have a, a letter from the doctor to let us out early to get going today. Uh, Robin LeBlanc, a beer expert, beer writer. Uh, you can write her, read her stuff. It's great stuff that she writes about beer if you're really interested in this stuff at the Thirsty Wench, which is her website. Uh, Robin, fantastic stuff. Really appreciate your time today.
3: Thank you very much.